0: Growing up as a kid in the 1980s and 1990s, we were constantly told, just say no. Just say no was the anti-drug ad campaign aimed at keeping kids from using illegal drugs. The slogan was created by President Reagan's wife, Nancy, and it was literally found everywhere. I remember this back in the 1980s, you literally saw this expression, just say no everywhere. There were just say no t-shirts, and bumper stickers, and TV commercials, and just say no clubs in schools. Drug use and abuse was a big problem for kids in the 1980s, and the just say no campaign was supposed to be the answer. If you had to sum up youth culture of the 1980s and early 1990s with one catchphrase that everybody would know, that would be it, just say no. The problem is, it didn't work. It had no real impact on youth drug use. Despite spending millions and millions of dollars on this ad campaign, it did virtually nothing to uh, lower the rate at which youth were using illegal drugs. And the reason it did not work is because a slogan alone cannot produce discipline in our lives. And of course, discipline is the key to wise decision making. Ultimately, discipline is the fruit not of a slogan, but discipline is the fruit of God's grace at work in our lives. It's interesting, the Bible has its own just say no passage. This is Paul in Titus chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You hear that? Paul here is talking about how to live a self-controlled and disciplined life, a sober-minded temperate life. And he he says the root of this is the grace of God. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It is the grace of God that trains us in self-control. Self-control is discipline, and discipline is worked in us by God's grace. It's not a matter of willpower, but of grace power. I'm not saying willpower is irrelevant, but if you really get to the, to the bedrock, the foundation of a disciplined life, it's not willpower, it's grace power, the power of God's grace in your life. It's really interesting to me. In the book of Proverbs, discipline is very obviously the fruit of wisdom. In Galatians chapter 5, discipline, or self-control, as it's called there, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So you might ask, well, which is it? Does it come from wisdom or does it come from the Holy Spirit? Well, actually, it's both together because Scripture again and again presents to us the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of wisdom. One of the ways the Spirit works His wisdom in His life is by graciously producing self-control and self-discipline in us. The Spirit leads us into wisdom by training us in self-control. And so again, self-control is not produced ultimately by sheer willpower, but by grace power. Self-control is not the fruit of self-dependence, but of grace-dependence. If you want to live a self-controlled life, you must look to the grace of God. But it's so important for us to understand how important self-control is to the Christian, to the culture of the church. It shows up again and again and again. Self-control, self-discipline, these themes. In Acts chapter 24, when Paul is preaching in front of Felix a Roman official, Luke summarizes Paul's message as reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Those three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Now, righteousness and judgment, the bookends of that message, that makes sense. Righteousness there is probably a reference to God's covenant faithfulness, God's promise-keeping faithfulness in forgiving our sins and declaring us righteous through the death of Christ. That's The manifestation of God's righteousness. Judgment, that of course is referring to the final judgment, the coming judgment at the last day when God sets all things right and when God raises us from the grave. The resurrection, that's associated with the final judgment. And of course, the resurrection is the sum of all our future hopes. But what comes between righteousness and resurrection? What sums up the Christian life in the meantime? Self-control. That's how Paul preached. That's what Paul preached. That was the content of Paul's message. But you really had to boil down how Paul described the life of faithfulness or, or the life of God's people. This is it. It's self-control. And again again, Paul brings this up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, each of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace given to you. It's like uh, Peter's talking to troops before they go into battle. Get ready for action, and the way that you can be victorious in this battle is to be self-controlled. It's self-control that is the key. 1 Peter 5:8 he says be self-controlled and alert because your enemy so here's the battle again your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour if you don't want to get devoured by the devil you better live a life of self-control 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control one thing that stands out in these passages is that while self-control, again, is clearly a work of God's grace and God's spirit in us, it is also something we must strive for. We must train ourselves in self-control. It doesn't just happen apart from human effort, apart from training. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, train yourself in godliness. Godliness is a function of training. Godliness arises in our lives. Godliness is produced in our lives because we've trained ourselves in it and for it. Paul goes on, he says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Bodily training will serve you in some areas of life, but training in godliness cuts across everything in your life. It will prepare you and equip you for everything you might face. It has value for every area of your life. Paul there views training in godliness as analogous to training the body for athletic competition. That's a picture of what this much more comprehensive training looks like. Or, this is really interesting, go again, go back to Paul's letter to Titus. Before he says it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no, to just say no to sin, uh, Paul, in, in that uh, first part of chapter 2, in his letter to Titus, tells Titus what to teach different subgroups within the congregation. You need to remember, Titus was ministering on Crete. He had a church in Crete, and Crete was a place known for its self-indulgence and its reckless living. And so what did the Apostle Paul tell Titus to teach? Well, again, Paul identifies four groups in the congregation in chapter two. Older men, older women, younger women and, uh, let me me do this again, older women and older men and younger women and younger men. Those four groups. So both sexes and then young and old of each. Those are the four categories. And his central point when he sums up for Titus what to tell each group, his central point is self-control. This is what you must must teach is self-control. So Titus chapter 2, verse 2, he says, teach the older men, So here's this group, the older men, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in the faith. That word temperate is really connected with self-control, but then Paul also adds to that self-control, self-discipline. Chapter 2, verse 3, the older women, uh, Titus is to teach the older women to be reverent, not slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Again, self-control is a theme here, especially manifesting itself in relation to alcohol use. Verse 5, older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure and busy at home, to be kind and to be submissive to their husbands. But note, in that list of things, the older women are to teach the younger women. He includes self control. And then in verse 6, he's to, uh, he tells Titus to teach the young men to be sober minded. Well, sober minded is just another one of these words that describes a life of discipline, to discipline their minds and, and the rest of their lives. That's what it means to be sober minded, to live a, a disciplined and, and self controlled life. So, what do you see there in Titus chapter 2? Both sexes and every age group are to be trained in self-control. Now, why is this message of self-control so important? Why is self-discipline so important? Well, it's because without it, we are out of control. If you are not trained in self-control, you are out of control. Without self-control, we will be controlled by our desires and our emotions. Without self-control, we are easily controlled and manipulated by others. So for example, if you cannot control your desire for things, if you cannot push back on greedy desires in your heart, then marketers can have their way with you and they can empty your pockets, they can empty your bank account. If you don't have control over your desires, you're vulnerable to the marketers. They can manipulate you and they can empty your wallet. If you can't control your desire to be liked, to be popular, you will become a people pleaser and you will be easily manipulated by others, by their approval or by their criticism they will have control over you. Because you don't have self-control, you'll be controlled by others. Because you fear men more than you fear God, and you want the praise of men more than you want the praise of God, you're easily manipulated. You're a target for manipulation. Of course, the book that teaches the most on self-control and self-discipline is the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs... Self discipline is presented as a skill we must master if we are growing to grow in wisdom and reach maturity. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. The word, therefore, discipline is sometimes translated as instruction, but I think that's too narrow a term to capture the Hebrew. It's not just about information. That's how we might think of instruction. The word really describes a chastening lesson, a transformative lesson, transformative instruction. I think the, the English word we have to best capture, that probably is the word discipline. It's not just information that's being imparted, but it's a way of life that's being imposed upon you that, that is forming and shaping you. It's a chastening lesson. We read Proverbs 25, verse 28 today. It describes discipline this way. Or Really, in this case, it's describing the lack of discipline. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city without walls, a city vulnerable to enemy attack. Now, it's interesting. The word for self-control used there literally describes the ability to Resist your own spirit or resist your own breath. It's, it's like being able to hold your breath. And as you hold your breath, you have that urge to breathe. But if you are controlling your breath, you'll be able to hold it for a really long time and resist that urge. To be self-controlled means you can suppress emotions and urges and impulses for the sake of a larger long-term mission. Even when your mind and your body are screaming at you to do something, if you are self-controlled, you can steer yourself in a different direction. To be self-controlled means that you have tamed your own desires. You've trained your urges. You've trained your desires. You can practice delayed gratification. You're not a slave to the moment. You're not going to be dragged around by your emotions. You're not going to be easily triggered. You know, people talk about things that are triggering today. Well, if you talk about yourself being triggered, that's just admitting that you don't have self-control, that you don't have control over your emotions. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city without walls, but you can turn that proverb around. This means the man with self-control is like a city with walls. See, what is the self-controlled man like? He has a well-fortified, well guarded heavily armed city ready to repel and push back any would-be invaders. Self-control means I can say no when I should say no and I can say yes when I should say yes. Even if if I've got to fight myself to do it, even if it's very hard for me to do it, I will do it because I am self- controlled. A self-controlled man has his defenses up. He's not easily taken. His self-control is a wall. His self-control is a boundary. His self-control creates a fortress that surrounds him. But again, if a man is lacking in self-control, he is defenseless. He is easily taken by temptation. He is vulnerable. He is easily triggered. He is easily defeated. And so Solomon insists that his son pursue a disciplined and self-controlled way of life. This kind of discipline really underlies the whole pursuit of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is really all about learning wisdom. The whole process of growing in wisdom and and, and pursuing maturation is really undergirded by this self-control, this discipline. Wisdom leads to self-control, but wisdom is also the fruit of self-control. Wisdom will produce discipline in our lives, but it's also discipline that produces wisdom. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. Think about a a, a warrior, a sort of one-man army, who's able to infiltrate and take over a whole city. Solomon here says that a man who can control his anger, who can rule his own spirit, is more valiant and, and mightier than that man who overtakes a city, who conquers a city all by himself, if you can rule over your spirit. Self control here is identified as including uh, control over anger, so that your anger only in the right times and, and right ways, so that your anger is conformed to virtue. And Solomon here again is saying if you can manage your anger, if you can conquer and control your anger, that's like taking a city. But it's obvious from from this and from the rest of Proverbs that you could just as easily substitute some other emotion there in place of anger or put some other desire there. And this proverb would still be true. Uh, A man who is slow to anger is mighty and a man who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. We could say, a man who controls his anxiety, or a man who controls his lust, or a man who controls his fear is better than he who takes a city. That's real might. That's real strength. When you have control over your desires and your emotional responses to things. Of course, It can be rather easy to control our emotions when things are going well. But when everything is falling apart, when it seems like everyone else is losing their mind, that's when your self-control or the lack of it will make all the difference. And especially, remember, Solomon is training his son, but Solomon is the king, so this is the prince. This is the king in waiting. He's going to be a leader. If you are going to be a leader, it is absolutely critical that you have controls over your emotional responses. You must have control over your desires. You cannot lead others unless you lead yourself. You cannot rule others unless you rule yourself. You cannot extend dominion in the world unless you start with self-dominion. If you can rule your spirit well, you can rule others well. Self-rule is the foundation of all other forms of rulership or leadership. So let's define discipline. If we look at everything that these scriptures have to say about discipline, uh, what can we say? Again, uh, Proverbs, because this is the king training the prince, the king in waiting, he is going to be a leader. He's being trained for that in the book of Proverbs. He is going to be a warrior. He's going to have a mission to fulfill. And Solomon wants his son to see that discipline is essential to all of those things. So discipline in Proverbs could be defined this way. Discipline is training in self-control that leads to the fulfillment of one's mission. Discipline in Proverbs is training in self-control that leads one to the wise fulfillment of one's mission. It's training in self-control that gives you the character needed to fulfill the mission. Discipline frees you to fulfill your design. Self-control is the freedom to do what is right, even when your desires are conflicted. It is the freedom to do what is right, even when you don't feel like it, or even when it's very difficult, or even when it will come at great cost, or bring great suffering. See, one thing that's really clear about discipline, about self-control in Proverbs is that there is no shortcut to it. There's no pill you can take, there's no 12-step program, Again, self-discipline is the fruit of grace. It's the fruit of grace working in and through human action and human effort to obey God in all things. But there's no substitute for that effort. Grace makes the effort possible. It's not an alternative or substitute to it. You will not attain discipline without hard work. Again, think of Paul's illustration of the athlete. The athlete cannot compete and win the prize unless he trains Unless he really pushes himself, he's got to put forth the effort. And so it is growing in discipline. But note this, with discipline there is a great freedom. Discipline is the freedom of self-rule. Discipline is self-governance. It's when you have subdued yourself, you have dominion over yourself. Discipline is self-mastery. Discipline means you have mastery over yourself, your mind, your heart, your body. And so discipline, in the book of Proverbs, we especially see this discipline is the key to fruitfulness and productivity. It is the key to accomplishing your God-assigned mission in life. We could say discipline leads to dominion. In Proverbs, this discipline begins on the outside. This discipline begins on the outside and works its way in. It's an outside-in Kind of process. It really, in the book of Proverbs, starts with parental discipline, with the discipline of a mother and a father. That maternal discipline, that paternal discipline, as mom and dad use the rod and other forms of painful chastening in order to instill in their children this virtue of self-control. Moms and dads discipline their children so that the children can eventually outgrow that discipline, so they can become self-disciplined. And then mom and dad's discipline falls away because now you're a self-disciplined person. But there has to be this discipline that comes from mom and dad. In the book of Proverbs, that's really the foundation. That's the starting point. But of course, it's not just painful chastening. That's part of it. But it's also positive teaching. Discipline in the book of Proverbs is really both. It is that... Painful discipline that a mom and dad inflict upon us, but it's also teaching us self-restraint and, and teaching us self-direction. So discipline in Proverbs, and you see this with parents, but of course it's, it's worked out in other ways, but discipline, it's not just avoiding what is wrong, it's loving and pursuing what is right. In Proverbs, parental discipline is the normal foundation for a life of self-discipline. Obviously, not everybody gets that discipline in their childhood. That doesn't mean they're doomed to to never live a disciplined life. You can learn it in other ways. But parental discipline is the normal foundation for a life of self-discipline. Parents, think about this. God has given you your children so that you can discipline them in positive and negative ways so that you can shape them and form them into self-disciplined, self-controlled, fruitful, productive young men and women. That's your goal as a parent. Uh, Parents, you need to understand, the sins that you do not help drive out of your children's hearts in their youth will very likely plague them for the rest of their lives. If you don't teach them self-control, it's something they will very likely struggle with for the rest of their lives. Parents, understand the virtues you do not cultivate in your children during their youth will be much more difficult for them to learn later on when they are older. You're handicapping your own children if you don't discipline them, if you don't teach them self-control, if you don't simply insist on it and impose it on them, or if you don't teach them to love and pursue the right things. You're you're handicapping your kids for the rest of life. See, mothering and fathering is all about imposing positive and negative discipline on our children so they can learn self-discipline. And kids, you need to think about this too. You kids who are still under your parents' roof, you need to listen to mom and dad. You need to learn from them. You need to obey them. You need to soak up and absorb all the wisdom they have to offer you. They teach you and they discipline you for your good because they want you to live a life of wisdom and a life of happiness. Life will go much better for you if you trust your parents and you receive their wisdom. Heed. Hear and heed the words of your parents. Hear and heed their instruction. One of the signs of wisdom in Proverbs is teachability or correctability. One of the signs of wisdom in Proverbs is that you are humble enough to receive correction from others. Receiving correction does require humility. But receiving correction is also necessary if you're going to grow in wisdom. And certainly this is true of kids. This is what parents are doing with kids, correcting them and reproving them and rebuking them all the time. But we need this throughout the course of our lives. We need to be willing to receive correction from others. Proverbs 9, verse 9, says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The righteous man is just like a sponge soaking up wisdom and instruction and correction from others. He's not like the fool who is wise in his own eyes who already thinks he knows everything. No, the wise man, the truly wise man is humble enough to add to his wisdom, to keep growing in wisdom. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Okay, Kids, your mom and dad may not want you to say the word stupid, but in this case the Bible uses it. And it's to describe a person who will not accept correction. Who hates correction. He hates his spankings. He hates it when mom and dad correct him. He's stupid. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, which we read, really sum it all up. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his correction. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Kids understand, your mom... And dad, discipline you so they can delight in you. And their discipline in your life is a sign of their love. Discipline, whether it comes from an earthly or a heavenly father, is for our good and it is a sign of love. If your parents didn't care, they wouldn't discipline you. They discipline you precisely because they do care. And receiving this discipline, again, at whatever age or stage we're at in life, receiving this discipline is what produces the fruit of wisdom in our lives. And so really, again, you could say the goal of discipline in Proverbs is the same as the goal of wisdom. It is dominion. It is to extend our dominion in accord with the creation mandate of Genesis chapter 1. But all dominion in the world starts with self-dominion. Note that word dominion is related to words like domicile or domestic. To take dominion is to build a house. It's to build a household. Ultimately, it's to build a civilization. In order to have the power to build a house, to build a household, to build a civilization, we must be disciplined. And when discipline collapses, so does civilization. Self-discipline is power. It's the power to live free. It's power to control your desires and your habits, your way of thinking and acting. It's power to control your impulses and your speech and your emotions. Again, you will either rule yourself as a wise and disciplined person or you will be ruled by chaos. Those are really your only two choices. See, discipline is warfare. It's war against your own sins, war against your sinful desires and habits. It's the battle to advance righteousness starting in your own life. That's what discipline is all about. The whole book of Proverbs shows us this. Again, it describes the the habits of a disciplined life. That's really what discipline does. It produces a set of habits in us, and those habits produce a way of life. Discipline produces character, character. Discipline is the way of wisdom. It is the way of life. Discipline is freedom. Where there is no discipline, there is no freedom. But where there is discipline, there will be freedom. Booker T. Washington, great American, uh, who did great things in, in, in our state at Tuskegee, he understood this very, very well. And listen to this, because I think in so many ways this summarizes this whole theme as it's found in Proverbs and the rest of Scripture. Listen to what Booker T. Washington had to say. The child who wants to spend time in play rather than in study mistakes play for freedom. The spendthrift who parts with his money as soon as it is received mistakes spending for freedom. The young man who craves the right to drink and gamble mistakes debauchery for freedom. The man who claims the right to idle away his days upon the street rather than to spend them in set hours of labor, mistakes, loafing for freedom. And so all through human experience, we find that the highest and most complete freedom comes slowly and is purchased only at a tremendous cost. Freedom comes through seeming restriction. We might say freedom comes through discipline. Those who are most free today are those who have passed through great discipline. Those persons in the United States who are most truly free in body, mind, morals are those who have passed through the most severe training. They are those who have exercised the most patience and at the same time the most dogged persistence and determination. I believe that both the teachings of history as well as the results of everyday observation should convince us that we shall make our most enduring progress by laying the foundation carefully patiently in the ownership of the soil, the exercise of habits of economy, the saving of money, the securing of the most complete education of hand and head, and the cultivation of Christian virtues. What is Booker T. Washington saying? He's saying discipline is freedom. Discipline like wisdom begins with knowing who you are, and how you are designed to live. It means knowing your limits and boundaries. It means knowing what leads to a thriving and flourishing life. A dog can't live underwater, and a whale can't live on land. We have to understand how we are designed to live, the boundaries that God has set for us. They're the boundaries of a playground. It's those boundaries that create freedom. And learning to enforce those boundaries on yourself is the freest way to live. Uh, Proverbs 17:24 says this: "The discerning sets his face towards wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are towards the ends of the earth. The fool wants no boundaries. He wants no constraints. He wants nothing restraining him or, or holding him back. The fool wants to live a life without limits. The fool thinks of freedom as doing anything I want to do, when and how I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. The fool thinks I can be whatever I want, I can do whatever I want, I can live however I want. The fool thinks that's freedom. But the fool is a beached whale. The fool is a drowned dog. He's forgotten God's design and God's boundaries For living. The fool's pursuits are a worthless waste of time and energy. He's got his eyes set on the horizon. He wants no boundaries, no limits, no restraints. It doesn't matter how fast the fool goes, he's headed in the wrong direction. And so the harder and faster he goes, the worse it gets. He won't stay within his God given boundaries, he won't adhere to the God given design. And so his life has no clear cut focus or purpose or goal. He wanders about aimlessly. What happens when you lack self-control? I want you to listen to this carefully because this is so crucial, not only to understand what happens in our own lives when we lack discipline, but what's happening in our society right now. When you do not have self-control, it is very easy for others to step in and control you, and you might not even realize that's what's happening. You think it's freedom when you're actually being controlled by others. When you lack self-control, others will control you. So in America today, who would like to be able to control the populace? And how are they breaking down people's self-control in order to gain control over others? Well, G.K. Chesterton pointed out, that sexual liberation is actually about political control. Why is there smut everywhere you turn constantly? We're constantly surrounded by smut. Why is there a concerted campaign? Why has there been a concerted campaign for over a generation to break down sexual discipline that ties sex to the covenant of marriage? Why has all of that been attacked, and subverted, and broken down. Well, G.K. Chesterton explained this over 100 years ago. He said, free love is the first and most obvious bribe offered to a slave. What was the sexual revolution all about? Enslavement in the name of liberty. They told you it would be liberating. Really, it was enslaving. That's what the sexual revolution is all about. They told us it was sexual liberation. It was really all about political enslavement. Tyrants want a sex-addicted, promiscuous population because such populations are very easy to manipulate and control. This kind of sexual liberation, which is no liberation at all, it weakens men, it weakens families, it weakens churches. And of course, it's not just sexual liberation. So This is happening on so many fronts in our culture. Why do you think there's this constant push to legalize marijuana everywhere? Because when people are high, they're easy to control. They're passive. It weakens resolve. It weakens resistance. It destroys personal discipline. There are a lot of powerful people in our society who are very happy to pass out condoms and pass out needles and hand out welfare checks and keep the smut streaming right into your home and make it easy for you to get addicted to gambling and to screens and to alcohol because all of those things destroy discipline. And without discipline, you are weak and you're easy to control, you are easy to manipulate. Without discipline, you are a slave. If you cannot control yourself, you will still be controlled. But you'll be controlled by others. Most likely people that hate you. Augustine said, a man has as many masters as he has vices. Your vices might feel like freedom in the moment. In the short run, they might feel like freedom, but they are really enslaving And when you have a whole society that is celebrating vices, celebrating all kinds of notorious vices, rather than suppressing those vices, when those vices are are, are held out to us in the public life of a culture or a nation and presented to us as freeing and liberating, you need to understand the play that's being run. You're really being enslaved. It may be done in the name of freedom, but its purpose is to enslave you. To hold you in bondage. And this is exactly what is happening in our world right now. It is absolutely crucial to understand this if you want to grasp what's going on in our culture. Why your sense of virtue is being constantly assaulted. They are trying to break you down and to destroy your self-discipline. So you'll be a slave who they can easily manipulate. Mark Warren says it this way. I really like it. Mark Warren says, if you don't govern yourself... You will be governed by others, and your undisciplined impulses will be the reins they use to lead you. Your lack of discipline, your lack of self-control in all these areas of life puts a collar around your neck and a leash in the hand of a tyrant. And then that tyrant can lead you or, 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 or drag you any which way he wants you to go because you don't have the strength, you don't have the courage, you don't have the resolve, you don't have the self-control or the self-discipline to resist. So what then is the answer? Well, by the grace of God, we must rebuild self-discipline. We must rebuild self-control. We must rebuild a, a Christian culture, a, a culture in our in our families and in our Churches, a culture of self-control, a culture of self-discipline. You know, self-discipline, I mean, let's face it, it really is a very simple concept. And yet it's so hard to implement. That's why, again, Paul had to tell Titus, you've got to teach every group in the church about self-control because everybody, whether it's a male or a female, whether they're young or old, they need teaching in self-control. We live in a culture that I would say is every bit as reckless as ancient Crete was. Every bit is undisciplined and chaotic. A culture that values self expression over self discipline. A culture that values feeling good over being good and acting good. I talked about this a little bit uh, in the last couple weeks, talking about work. Recovering self discipline means we have to reject the therapeutic turn our culture has taken that makes feelings the norm and authority, that allows feeling and emotion to displace scripture as the authority that allows feelings to dictate what we do if it feels right it must be right if it feels good it must be good No, your feelings are important they're a god-given part of you but your feelings this is what you see in proverbs your feelings have to be disciplined and shaped and molded what happens if the farmer doesn't feel like pulling weeds What happens if the athlete doesn't feel like training? What happens if dad doesn't feel like getting up and going to work? Or if mom doesn't feel like changing that dirty diaper? We can't be governed by our feelings. Self-discipline means trusting God's Word over your feelings. Self-discipline starts with making God's Word the highest authority in your life. It means you seek to obey Scripture rather than your impulses and your urges. But here's the crucial thing. Self-control requires some kind of overarching goal that gives direction to everything you do. If you really want to have discipline in all of life, you've got to have some kind of goal or mission or purpose in your life that ties everything you do together, that integrates everything, that gives your whole life meaning and purpose and direction. I mean, maybe you've noticed there are some people out there who will be very disciplined in one area of life, but then very undisciplined in other areas of life. So you may have somebody who's very disciplined at work, and he's a whiz at work, but his home life is a mess. Or you may have somebody who's very disciplined about exercise and diet, but they've got a serious anger problem, a serious problem with their temper. So they rule themselves in one area, but not in another area. That happens, partial discipline Some areas disciplined, other areas undisciplined. That happens when a person's deepest goals are too small to cover all of life. There's no one overarching goal that ties everything together and that brings discipline into everything they do. There's no one overarching desire that governs and rules all the other desires of their life. There's nothing that really integrates everything that disciplines all of life. Now look, the reality is, all of us do struggle with conflicting goals and conflicting desires. You know, you want to get in shape, but you also want that donut. Okay, Conflicting desires. Okay, Well, guess what? The deepest desire will always win in the end. So this really comes down to what is your deepest desire in life? What can produce discipline in all of life? Holistic discipline that will shape everything you do, that will tie everything in your life together. You know, Proverbs 23, verse 12 says, apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. Solomon says, discipline your heart. Your heart is where the deepest desires of your soul, the deepest desires of your being reside. How do you discipline your heart? I think the ultimate answer to that question comes in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Think about what's happening when Jesus says this. The disciples at this point know Jesus is the Messiah, or at least they have an inkling of that. They know he's heading for glory, and it's a glory they desire. More than anything else, they want to follow Jesus into glory. Because glory is the fulfillment of all of your desires. Glory is the greatest joy possible. They want to follow Jesus into glory. But then Jesus throws them a curveball. There's a twist. He says, if you want to have that glory, you've got to take up your cross. If you want to follow me into glory, Jesus says, you have to take up your cross daily. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. See, what brings lasting and true and comprehensive discipline into your life, it is ultimately the cross. It's when you see the glory and the joy of Jesus, and yes, you desire to share in that glory and that joy, and that becomes the dominant desire in your life, but then you realize to get there, you've got to take up your cross. That dominant desire to share in the glory and the joy of Jesus, that integrates your whole life into one overarching purpose, one mission that sums everything up that your whole life is about. I find it really interesting. I I believe fully that Solomon's principles in the book of Proverbs, Solomon's principles for self-discipline are all cruciform. They're all about dying to yourself so that you can rise into a new and glorious kind of life. He, did not, he obviously didn't know about the cross in the way we do now. But I think he's also pointing to the cross with everything he says about how we are to live. And so now on this side of the cross, we can see how Solomon's pattern for wise living is ultimately cruciform. The disciplined life is a life of sacrificial death, of constantly dying to yourself, so that a new and a a more glorious and a more triumphant you can rise on the other side of that sacrifice. Solomon shows us this, but Jesus is the one who fully reveals that The disciplined life is a life of many sacrificial deaths to self, leading to many triumphant resurrections. Day by day, as you enter into greater and greater glory, greater and greater Jesus-likeness. You are made to live a life of discipline, which is to say you are made to live life as a disciple of Jesus, which is to say you are made to live the life of the cross, a cruciform life, a life of self denial, a life of self giving love, a life of sacrifice. That's what following Jesus looks like. If you want to follow Jesus into ultimate glory and ultimate joy, the only way to get there is through the cross. The cross must discipline you. You must learn to deny yourself in light of the cross. A lack of self-control means you are enslaved. It is ultimately the cross that sets us free to live a disciplined life, that sets us free to live the way we were made to live. See, we started out saying self-control is the fruit of wisdom, and self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, but now we can say, too, self-control is the fruit of of the cross. The discipline of the cross makes all of your desires your servants. So now instead of you serving your desires, your desires will serve you. The cross slays the old self and makes you new. It is the cross that reveals God's wisdom. It is the cross that will ultimately make you wise. I love how Paul applies this to his own life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the self-description he gives there, he says, do you not know that in a race only one runner receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Paul says, run the race to win. Play the game to win. He says, everyone competes for the prize. And he says, everyone who wants to win the prize is self-controlled. See, there's self-control, self-discipline. If you want to win the prize, you have to be self-controlled. He says, they do it, athletes will do it, Runners and boxers and wrestlers will do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it. That is, we live self-controlled lives. Why? That we might receive an imperishable crown. We sacrifice, we discipline ourselves, we take up our crosses daily. Why? So we might enter into that eternal glory. And so Paul goes on to say, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. See, what is Paul saying here? He's taking the message of Jesus about the cross and the message of the whole Bible about wisdom and about self-discipline and glory, and he's applying it to himself. And he's saying the key to a disciplined life, again, is not mere willpower. No, self-discipline flows out of a heart that is committed to Jesus and his mission and his glory. And when that becomes your overarching goal, that will bring discipline to your whole life. That will align everything in your life under His Lordship. And now you'll live an integrated, whole, and focused life. See, self-rule happens when we desire to live under the rule of Jesus. That's really the key. And living under His rule means living a life of total discipline and total freedom a life of total discipline and total freedom. That's what Jesus promises us through his death and resurrection. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.